in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. In fact, I have a huge task that I have given myself. Uh, I'm going to finish out chapter 1. If you notice, that's a lot of verses. And so um, we'll see how it goes. Mark, chapter 1. Thanks, Frankie. This came in clutch right here. The preliminaries are now done in Mark and he's beginning his actual accounts of the events of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark begins these events in the synagogue, and we'll talk about that in a second. And if you remember, recall last week, we saw three things, what Jesus did before he began his ministry, uh, kind of like his launch into ministry. Jesus dominated, and he kind of displayed all this, and some of this in private, but he displayed his dominance over the dominion of darkness when he went toe-to-toe with Satan. So he, de- he just demolished that fight so that people can recognize this is the king. Jesus also demonstrated his authority over sin with the message of the gospel. Jesus also demonstrated his authority over the souls of sinners by calling the disciples Uh, into this new community that we called it last week. And you're going to see those three things, again, parallel right into this ushering of his ministry. So his ministry work, you're going to see those things again, his dominance over the dominion of darkness, over Satan, and then his uh, dominance over sin with the message of the authority of the word of God, and then his dominance over the souls of sinners again. So again, a lot of passages. I tell you what we'll do. We'll just take some of this, break it apart, talk about it, and then just go on and on and on until about two o'clock we'll be done. Verse 21. That's a lie. And they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he being Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now let me talk about the synagogue for just a second. A synagogue was a meeting place like a local meeting place. In the Old Testament, you had the temple in which this is where the gathering of people would go to experience the presence of God. And so now in the early Jewish culture, you had the introduction of synagogues. By this time, these were like local churches where you would receive instruction, where they would be local assemblies. The law would be read by the rabbis on the Sabbath. And during the week, it was used as a school and also used during the week as a civil court. And so that's our framework of what a synagogue is. We all feel so much smarter now, don't we? Great. That's what I'm here for. And so let's pick it up in verse 22. And so they're there at the synagogue and they were astonished at his teachings for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And immediately the unclean spirit convulsing him, (laughs) that'd be interesting to watch, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned 
among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. There's a stark difference in the response of who God is or who Jesus is in this text. One is the response from the demonic or the heavily oppressed man who has a demon and evil spirit in him speaking out of him. And the other is the response of the people who are around Jesus. The demon was afraid of Jesus. Why? Because he knew he was. Oh, snap. All right. This is going to get really bad. He's here for us. He's here to set up his dominance and his dominion and his rule and reign. And the demons know who Jesus is. But then, and so they were terrified, right? Now, the people did not know who Jesus is, and, and how were they responding? They were amazed. They weren't terrified. They didn't know who he was, and they were just kind of amazed at who he was. And here we have the first testimony in the gospel of the book of Mark to identify to the identity of Jesus and it comes from a demon. The, the Pharisees don't know who Jesus is. The religious other leaders, they don't know who Jesus is. The people don't know who Jesus is. And even like the followers of Christ, when they're with him, they're constantly questioning, is, right, who, really? Or is, this, is this who Jesus is? And it's interesting that the crowd was amazed, but the demons were terrified. And the difference is the demons knew they had a reason to be terrified. They had a reason to be fearful because they knew who Jesus really is. The people just thought he's some cool dude doing some really cool things. And so they were just amazed. The difference is, is that when we see Jesus for who he really is, we get this sense of majesty, right? We know what majesty is, right? Like you go into a cliff and you see a beautiful landscape and you see beautiful scenery in front of you. Like that's majesty. But there's also fear, right? Because one wrong move, you take one step. Are you, like here, you fall like a thousand or 2000 feet, Right? There's this little sense of like this majesty and this fear of like how beautiful it is. And yet I've got to be a little afraid of this, right? And the demons, they know who Jesus is and they're terrified of who he is because they have that fear of him. Now, the difference is that, is that when people see Jesus for who he really is, they're not just amazed at the beauty of what he's doing and who he is, but they also have a little majesty and that, that fear in them. And when you see Jesus with those two aspects, amazement and fear, then we don't have to recoil and, and leave immediately from his presence like the demons did. No, we get to run to him. We, we get to come to Christ for who he really is. And, and that's the big difference between this. What makes the demons terrified of of Jesus is not just they know who he is, but it's also the message that he comes with, right? 
Jesus comes in the synagogue and he's, and he's teaching with authority and he's teaching the truth of God's word. Now, rabbis, when they would come into the synagogue and when they would teach, it would be more of like this, let me uh, recite what another rabbi said, what this rabbi said, or, or they would just kind of quote from the Torah or what we know as like the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus is doing something a little different and he is teaching and instructing them and they are completely amazed with his authority. So the demons, they recognize who Jesus is, but they're also recognizing the message and the truth of what he's speaking. And you've got to understand what the demons have done. All right, I know this is kind of weird, like talking about demons, and right? But it's, it's just in the text and it's just where we are. But what they have done is they have unleashed a demonic, false religious way that people were listening to, right? Like some of the religious leaders, they had extra biblical laws on top of laws on top of laws that weren't even from the Bible, and that we're there to oppress the people of God. And so you got to understand this. The demons recognize that their way that they've been promoting is about to crumble. The demonic message of the demons and the religious, false religious leaders is crumbling because now the true message of Jesus is here. And so why are the demons terrified? Not just because God in flesh is right before them, but he is there to crush their message, to crush their demonic message of false religion, of this do-goodism, of this legalistic way to make yourself right before the Father. And Jesus is saying, I've got a better way for you one that is not burdened down with legalism and do-goodism and more moralism. I'm here to crush that with the message of authority of his grace of Jesus Christ. So you got to know like these demons like, well, our message is about to be out the can here. And so remember this from last week. Jesus dominates over the power of Satan. And what does Jesus do in the synagogue here? dominates over the dominion of darkness. He rules and he reigns over the demons and they tremble and they flee. And remember last week, like Jesus dominates over sin with the message of the gospel. It's right here. He's showing that way to us again with his message of authority and that of truth to the people. I got to get going or we'll be here for like all day. Verse 29 and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Sorry, could you say that again? Boy, you better get on out of here. I couldn't hear what you said. That like, that, that like made my heart drop and I'm go change my underwear now. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. This is Peter, Simon Peter. And so he's got a mother-in-law. What's that mean? He got a wife, right? (laughs) Shocker to some of us. And immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. 
And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now this is the end of a long day. Maybe Jesus would have liked to have rested, right? But in the dusk of that Sabbath evening, the people did what they could not have done any sooner because they were Sabbath-bound people, right? And so they began bringing to him a steady stream of people. And they're coming from all places. They're demonized. They're sick. They have diseases. And literally, like, the whole city is right here at the door of where Jesus is staying. Like, they brought everybody here. And he's doing this. Where is he doing this out of? Out of a home. So you have Jesus in the gathering of the people and Jesus now in the scattering of where his people are in homes. Remember what Jesus was doing when he was calling Simon and, and and Andrew and James and John last week, he was calling a new gospel-centered community, a new way of doing life. And, and so what do you have right here? It's the result of it. Here is what a new community looks like. Here is what the gospel-centered community looks like, a place of healing, a place where people receive his grace a place where people are fully restored, burdened down with their sickness for years, burdened down and oppressed by the demonic oppression. And what's happening in this gospel-centered community here? Healings, restoration. And so Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what heaven on earth looks like. This is what gospel-centered community looks like. Place of restoration. He's building this new community, and this is what it looks like. I love, I love like what Jesus does, that he's up early. Um, I'm not an early bird, dude. I don't like, like, when the sun comes out, I feel like I sizzle, you know, and just like, go away. There's like a vampire in me or something. But Jesus is up, right, before the sun even comes up. He's up and he's, which is indicating that he had been sleeping, which is like a display of like his, his humanity and also his, his deity. And he goes to a scheduled place. And the word here is eremos, which translates, we've already used this word in Greek a few times, which translates as the wilderness. So Jesus goes into a desolate place to be alone with the Father to go pray because he was fully dependent on what the will of the Father was, dependent on the power of the Spirit. And so the Spirit comes on him, and immediately, like, like he's led again out into the wilderness to pray. 
Three times in Mark, it tells us that he went into this kind of secluded place to pray. But the ministry and the life of Jesus, he's marked by a life of prayer, right? You, you look at the other four gospels and you see that Jesus is praying before baptism. He's prayed before the calling of the 12. He prayed before feeding the multitude. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed before he taught the disciples how to pray. He prayed before he raised Lazarus. He prayed on the last night in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in the upper room and he prayed hanging on a cross. Now watch what happens in verse 40. Now, a leper, not the animal, okay, came to him. I thought that was funnier, but you know what? Fine, forget y'all. And a leper came to him. I got so many jokes. Imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean, moving with petty he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer <clears throat> for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter or every place and everywhere. Now, leprosy um, was a very, just a tragic disease if you were to get this early. In fact, you could still uh, hear cases of it in third world countries, if you look up what leprosy does to a human body, it disfigures you. It, it can take away members of your body. And it, it's just a very tragic disease. And people suffer from this. It attacks the nerves and the skin and below the skin. And in this time, you were cut off from everything. Like if you had leprosy, like you were in isolation, you were what we did two years ago, like when we all hit out in the bunkers, you know, to slow the curve. Like, like this is who you are. This is your lifestyle. This isn't a two-week go in isolation. You have leprosy. You no longer have access to anything in the community. You have no access to the temple, no access to the market. You are unclean and you are disgusting. That's how you were viewed in this time. And this is an interesting story of what a rabbi would do. A rabbi, if he touches a leper, then he himself is unclean. So watch the turn of events in what Jesus does. Jesus then touches the leper, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the unclean becomes clean. Like this is like a, this is, this is huge for the people who see this and witness this because they're used to rabbis wanting to isolate themselves and wanting the leper to stay far away from all of culture and society. So Jesus doing this to, the, to this leper would send a shockwave to the people. It's like launching a grenade in culture and be like, y'all know what? I don't care. I'm going to where the leper is. And so this leper comes to Jesus and all Jesus does is he touches this man and this man is clean. The unclean becomes clean. 
And this is an image of what sin is to us. Like you are unclean in your sin, right? You have no access to God in your sin. Like in fact, with the scripture would tell us, you are an enemy of God. You have been alienated from God. You are hostile towards God. But then Jesus steps in and touches us and makes us clean. And now, instead of the Father seeing you in your uncleanness, in your filth, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed upon you. It's just a fancy word for saying that he has clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Father sees in you. And now this man who's been dealing with this for his whole life now is clean. Didn't have anything to do with his attitude, didn't have anything to do with his faith. You know, there's people in scripture, they didn't have faith. They, there are people who had faith, didn't have faith, and Jesus healed them. The text says that everybody that was being brought to Jesus was being healed. Demon-possessed people who have been demonically oppressed were being set free. There is no implication of how much this faith person or how less this faith person, they were just there. Jesus healed them. Like what a comfort that is for us. You struggling in your faith. You think Jesus is like, oh no, their faith level, their meter's going down. I can't reach them today. The faith level and the faith meter in this one and that one. I just, Holy Spirit, don't you dare go to them. You think that is a distraction to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ? Like, think about this for a second and what this does to the word of faith movement that simply says, you just gotta have more faith, more faith. You're not getting your healing. You need more faith, more faith, more faith. This squishes that demonic heresy. You come as you are with faith or without faith. Jesus is there. That is the good news of what Jesus is doing in this text here. That is not just a parallel image of what he has done to our sin, but it is also an incredible, encouraging message to us that even in those days of darkness when we are doubting and we have no faith at all, Jesus is not distracted by that. He does not leave you when you are lacking in your faith. He does not leave you when you have those doubts. The love of Jesus Christ is there. Just a few thoughts from all 20-something of these verses that I want to leave us with. Two, two quick things here. Jesus is in the synagogue and in the homes. The implication for us is Jesus cares about the gathering and Jesus also cares about the, I guess we can call it the scattering because that rhymes, right? <laughs> Jesus is into the gathering. He's also into the scattering of believers. Jesus valued the gathering at the synagogue, right? Sometimes I've, I've heard, you know, Jesus just isn't really interested in organized religion. Well, if he wasn't interested in organized religion, then he wouldn't have been at the synagogue teaching. 
You know, it's kind of like when people say, um, you know, I really get Jesus and I love him, but his church, they've hurt me. I can't stand them and I'll have nothing to do with it. So you love Jesus, but you hate his bride. Tell me how that's working out in your marriage. Right? So, so I'm married to Miranda, all right? But I hate her guts. Like, come on now. Like, what rational, like, what, what? That makes no sense. You know, you know what's going to happen? It's called divorce, right? She's dropping me off in a canyon somewhere and leaving me for the wild to pick at me and kill me. That's what she's doing, all right? Now, I just revealed her true heart. I don't think she's in here, so that's good. Don't tell her. It's our little secret, okay? <laughs> but Jesus, like, okay, let's, let's press it a little further. Jesus died for his bride. Jesus died for his church. Right? So the little nuances you hear in culture, or, you know, just like these, the, these Western Christianity, these ideas, well, you know, I have Jesus, I just don't need a, the church. That is a demonic lie. Let's see how you do in your walk of faith, isolated, all by yourself. You, you, all right, let me, let me say it like this. In the New Testament, nobody is called to be isolated. You know, I just feel like I'm a prophet and, and I'm Jeremiah. I'm going to be a prophetic boy. He was isolated. Yeah, and he's got his can kicked out of him. Ended up beaten naked in a ditch. All right, that's where the isolated go. All right, if God calls you to be isolated, then I would, I would imagine you're going to be like some of the prophets who got their, their, <clears throat> got their rear ends beaten, right? All right? The unsanctified version of Matthew almost came out. But anyway... But Jesus calls us into community. That's why every letter Paul writes is like to the church of Ephesians. It's this holistic gathering of people to the church of Corinth. It's a holistic gathering of people. Jesus values the gathering. Jesus values what, what he called the, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people who've been called out gathered around a central event that took place, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so we value the gathering here because Jesus valued the gathering of believers. Like, so that means like Sunday is important for us. Like what we do, it's just, it's more than just coming into a theater and it's more than, you know, fighting over the comfortable seats and reclining and taking a nap when the preacher's preaching. Like it's more than like, like we are here to refresh ourselves. Like we're a part of something bigger than what we can believe or imagine. Like we are joining with saints who are gathering all around the world, some in comfortable luxury seatings and some who are hiding out in their basements in China. And we're joining with them. Why? Because the gathering matters. And not only does the gathering matter, but, but, but what we saw is where Jesus is doing a lot of his ministry. Right? It's in the home. Jesus saw that this, this home was a, also a place of where the work and the kingdom of God's work would be done serving people in God's family. 
and serving people outside of God's family. And that's what we see here, what Jesus is doing. That's why, like, for us, like, I know this is going to sound like this promotion or something, but this is why small groups matter to us. Like, if you're not in a small group, you want to lead. Like, God has given you a gift to lead. Like, we need you. Like, small group ministry matters in this church. Like, we can't meet here during the week. You know, surprise, we'd have to pay more money for that. And we ain't got that. So, you know what we do? We do ministry in the homes of God's people. That's our model of ministry right now. And let's, let's just say this. That was the model of ministry for the early church. House ministry. Ministering to the called and ministering to those who were outside of the faith. So you got to just, just ask this question. Like, what would it look like for you to think that your home is not a place of retreat? Like, all right, so, so how many of you are with me on that one? Like, I view my house as a place of retreat. Leave me alone. Okay? <laughs> like, this is where I get rest. This is my respite. This is my, my place where I can just, just, you know, be me. And I can, like, unwind and just relax and be myself. Like, that's how we view our homes, is it not? There was a different way of doing things in early church history that the home was not viewed as just this place of retreat, but it was a place that was viewed where kingdom work was being done. So, so back to my question. What would it look like if you viewed your home not as a place of retreat, but as of a place where kingdom work is being done? That's, you know, <laughs> that kind of like, like, bro, you're touching on my, my, my comfort, right? You're touching on my, my conveniences. But what would it look like if your home is viewed as a place that is doing kingdom ministry work instead of just retreating? The, the early church, you have to understand about the early church, like how did they grow? Well, could it have been in the synagogue? Maybe. Paul's teaching in synagogues. People are coming to know Christ. But where's the primary growth happening in the early church? Huh? The house. The homes. I mean, you got to remember, Mark's inside looked into this, right? Wasn't it his mother that, that had opened up her house to possibly where, where the, the Last Supper was? So Mark understood this. He'd watched his mom do it his whole life. And then, and then lastly, just one more thing. I told you two, I lied. I got three points because I'm feeling like a Baptist today or something. Lastly here, and watch what, what, what happens in this thing. Jesus carved out time to get alone with God. Like after a long, hard day, Jesus, does he sleep in? No, nah, I mean, he's up early and ready for more ministry. He's like, all right, boys, let's go. We got to go down the road and we got ministry to do. I got to preach a message. I mean, remember what just happened? Like people were lined up at his door. Like if all y'all were lined up at my door, some of y'all demon possessed, some of y'all were filled with disease. Like the next day, I'm like, bro, that was a hard day. I cast out a lot of people or a lot of demons in the refuge city, church folks. 
Like it was, it was heavy. It was, so I just need my me time, right? I just need to sleep in for about a week. And Jesus, yeah, he got his rest, but immediately he was up early and, and he found his renewal with the father by getting alone with him. That, that was Jesus' rhythm of renewal. And, and so what's, what is your rhythm? Like how, how are you refreshed? How are you renewed by the spirit of God? Like, like I, I'm up in the morning and I want to like press snooze on my phone like a hundred times, right? I mean, and we're so distracted with technology, with these phones and devices. We're, we're, the main distraction we have is busyness. And all of these things are vying for our attention. But, but let me just ask, like, what, how are you carving out time to be with Christ? to be alone with him, just sitting in God's presence, praying to him. Having the Lord speak to you through his word. How, how often are you carving out time to be with Jesus? And like, you know, I know we all struggle with this. Like I, you know, I work, I, I have I pastor, I'm a husband, I parent, I friend, I do all of these things. Everything is vying for my attention and my time. So I, I, I get this is a struggle. But how was Jesus renewed? He'd be alone spending time with the Father. So I want to caution us real quick, and I'm going to close here in just a second. I want to caution us in how we interpret or we apply these scriptures um, that we see and that we just read. Um, one interpretation would say that you can go around and cast out demons and, you know, whatever. Uh, another interpretation would say, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to go heal everybody that I see. That's, you know, whatever. I, I, don't, I, I just don't think that's what's happening and that's the interpretation of the scripture, and that's what's what's happening here. Jesus came in, onto the scene to show us what the gathering looked like, and I think the main application in this this main interpretation in this is that Jesus dominated over the domain of darkness with the message and the authority of the truth, and that's what brought light into the darkness. So, so for all of us, if you want to take something away from this, then you, you go out there with the authoritative word and message of the cross of Christ, and that brings light into the darkness. This is not a call for us to start some weird occult. This is not a call for us to, to do, you know, some, to think we, we have some kind of different powers or whatever. And I'm not, I'm not like diminishing uh, spiritual gifts in no capacity. I'm just telling you how you apply this scripture matters. And, and I would suggest, and I would, and I would press and ease on us that it was the authoritative word of God that brought the light to the darkness. And we have that same message, that gospel, that euangelion message of Jesus Christ that we take to 
our homes, our workplaces, into the public square, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to pray this morning. You know, maybe you read this and you 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 see some of this and you kind of identify with. It. He's like, like you know, I'm not demon possessed or anything, but I feel oppressed, right? That's a huge difference. Okay, or you have. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But that doesn't mean that there can be days where you just feel like you just have this heaviness over you. And maybe you can identify that with depression or you're just feeling anxiety or maybe just feeling like this this heavy weight of the world, of your trauma, of your problems that just feel heavy on you. Like, I get that. I want to pray for you. Maybe you are are sick and, and, and I, you know, I, God can heal. He is able to heal. I, I want to pray for you. If you, you need salvation, I, w- I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that God would lead us into more house ministry. I want to pray that God would like urge some of you to stand up and say, you know what? I, I, I will lead. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to learn and I will lead and we will continue to push out the light of Christ through house ministry. Let me pray for us this morning over those few things.